Matt, I have uh, seen in Scripture where we are compared to a worm, and uh, from things I've read that the, where it's translated worm, it might actually be meaning maggot. Um, and so I'm not sure, is, uh, is a chigger a step up from a maggot? Did we just get a promotion? Maybe. I, pe- people ask, you know, why did God make mosquitoes? Well, chiggers are far worse. And I think what happened is chiggers were originally harmless. And then after the fall, they were part of the punishment there. They mutated into this terrible, terrible creature. Um, while we were having our song service, I experienced something that just enlightened me. Uh, incredibly about the human species. Um, there's something that I thought was a learned behavior, but now I am convinced that it is 100% instinct, and it just comes completely natural. Uh, my nine-year-old granddaughter got up to go use the restroom, and at, on her way there, she handed me her purse and said, hold this for me. just like it is meant to be that way. I'd like to introduce you to a couple of things that bring me a little bit of joy. Uh, this, uh, this is Justine. Uh, these both live in my office. Um, Justine is uh, a plant that I have heard uh, called a donkey tail plant, uh, but when I looked it up, it has some other names. Also, this is Frank. Um, I don't know what his common name is, but I named him Frank before I knew that his Latin name is Draconis Frangus. So it, it kind of fits. Um, Frank, Frangus, I don't know. They, uh, they started out, uh, well, he started out as a cut from a plant at my mother's house that she, uh, planted and, and uh, gave to me when I was up there one year. Um, this one started off about an inch tall in the little teeny, like the smallest clay pots available, and they were selling them at hot, uh, I don't know, for like a quarter, or I don't even remember what they were, but she was like this big, and all I did was bi- give her bigger pots and put lots of water on her, and she's just thrived. Just, just done really great. Um, Frank was about half that size when he was given to me. And he was in a smaller pot. Uh, and I didn't really know what I was doing with him at first. I still don't really know what I'm doing with plants. I just try. And then Google helps. Um, but he, last year, I didn't know if he was going to make it. These lower, these lower ones were, doing pretty poorly, and, and he lost a bunch of leaves, and I didn't know if he was going to make it at all, um, and I just started watering him like three times as much as I had been, because I thought, what can I, you know, I'm not going to hurt him at this point, he's practically dead, and he just took off growing. But Frank has a problem. You can probably see Frank's problem. He lives near my office window, And he keeps leaning over hard to get into that sunlight. So much so that he was sagging in his pot 
um, which I actually think I need to get him into a bigger one now and maybe put Justine into that pot. Uh, but he, he was just, if I tried to move him, he would not stand up straight. I mean, he would tip himself over. So I had to put in this dowel rod and tie him to it to keep him from, I mean, he would have uprooted himself. If I moved him away, he was like leaning into the screen, trying to get at that sunlight and just leaning hard. And if I had brought him out here without this dowel rod, probably would have tipped over and un- un- upended himself and unpotted himself. So I did that. I gave him some extra support in order to keep him from breaking off or pulling himself up by the roots. He just needs a little help sometimes. Over the decades, I have heard people comment to the effect that there seem to be two different Jesuses in Scripture. There is the one who is kind and gentle and meek and benevolent and, well, you know, loving. And then there is this other one who calls people hypocrites, calls people children of the devil. Can you imagine saying that to somebody's face? You're a child of the devil. And adulterers and idolaters and just gets in people's faces and doesn't pull any punches. A guy who tells people who are following him that they're not really interested in the truth, they just want another free meal. A guy who predicts people's doom and destruction, who overturns people's tables and drives them out of the temple with whips. Someone who is basically... Pretty, what we would call in today's day and age, if somebody behaved that way, you'd probably say they were being pretty unchristian-like. The facts, however, are that Jesus literally defines what behavior is Christian-like. And secondly, these two seemingly different Jesuses are, of course, the exact same person. Jesus simply behaves differently and appropriately to the situation and the people who are in that situation. I've heard it said this way. Jesus humbles the proud, but lifts up the humble. And I think that's pretty true. Today we're going to focus on the latter of those two aspects the lifting up of the humble. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Matthew 12, 15 through 21. It says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken Through the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Just before this passage, you know, I mean, it starts off with Jesus, aware of this, kind of leads you to believe there's a little bit more to this story. Jesus had been in a synagogue, and he had healed a man with a withered hand. The man had been, like, conspicuously placed right there in front of him, and it says that the Pharisees were, like, watching to see what he would do. They had stuck this guy there as a test and a means to try to attack him. This was no coincidence. The man had been put there, and they just sat silently watching. And I want to tell you something. This is nothing short of wicked. This is evil behavior on their part. Not only did they apparently have zero compassion for the man who was reduced to probably being a beggar, but they were using him as a prop to try to attack Jesus, whom they saw as their enemy. And this says an awful lot about their motives. It reminds me a lot of politicians who are pushing something which mostly is only good for whomever is funding their re-election campaign, but also usually somehow will benefit the politician. And despite them trying to push really bad legislation, they will go out and find some sorry soul whose life is in a shambles, and they will parade them in front of cameras and say how much more they care about this person than whoever it is they're against. I see that and I think, you know, here's an idea. You're a millionaire, which strangely is like a lot of our politicians somehow become millionaires. How about you actually just help that person? instead of making it a, making a person into a political stunt. Anyway, this is what happened just before our main passage. So Jesus went ahead and healed the man because he cared more about people than he did about some political or power struggle. You see, the whole reason they were watching him was because they had put legalism ahead of people. Jesus made it clear that they were hypocrites. He points out, you know what? If you had an animal that fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, you would help them out. And yet you're going to blame me for healing a person on the Sabbath? They were hypocrites and uncaring. And he made this crystal clear right in front of the whole worship service of everybody that was there. Whole synagogue full of people and he points out their incredible hypocrisy. And then he healed the man right in front of everyone. Their reaction, of course, was not to go, wow, he really is the Son of God. No, they plotted his destruction. 
This is why our passage starts out by saying that aware of this, he withdrew from there. Jesus wouldn't play their game and he wasn't going to try to save his own neck from their schemes, but he wasn't going to allow them to do anything until his schedule, his timeline came about. So he made one of what is often referred to as a tactical withdrawal. He simply left the area. He went somewhere else where it would be harder for them to attack him. We see, however, that the people who really wanted and needed his help, they weren't interested in who was in charge in Jerusalem. They weren't interested in which uncaring, unloving, self-centered group, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, didn't care. They didn't really care how they were going to wrangle situations to their political benefit. They probably didn't really even care which Roman was in charge of the area, except that some might be more brutal than others. What the afflicted, the crippled, the sick, the infirm, and the demon-oppressed cared about was that Jesus made it clear that he had the power to alleviate their suffering. And he had done so despite what the consequences might have been. So when Jesus left the area, they followed him. When they, did, when they did, it says here that he healed them all. Many times in Scripture, Jesus would perform a miracle. And it wasn't primarily done from a point of compassion. That might sound strange and harsh. But there are several places where it's specifically listed that he did a miracle for a purpose and that purpose wasn't listed as being compassionate to the person. Not primarily, anyway. That was a wonderful side benefit. But it wasn't his primary motive. I think of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus could have healed Lazarus if he had chosen to when he was still sick. He could have gone the moment that he heard But Jesus chose not to. He allowed Lazarus to go through the pains and toils of illness and death for the sole purpose of raising him from the dead in order to demonstrate that he had authority over death. Conversely, in some circumstances, it would appear that Jesus' primary and perhaps sole motivation was to be merciful and compassionate. There doesn't seem to be any other purpose that we can readily look at to explain why he healed so many in this instance and in others, except that it was the kind, loving, and compassionate thing for him to do to people who were suffering at that very moment. In some cases, Jesus' working of miracles was done primarily for the purpose of gathering a crowd and showing them the power that he had from God the Father in order to demonstrate 
that he was in fact the Messiah. That what he was saying, the words he was preaching to them, the rules he was teaching them as to how they should live their lives, those had authority from God and it was backed up by the fact that he was doing miracles. We, however, know in this and in some other situations that this was exactly the opposite of what he wanted to accomplish. How do we know that? Well, it says right here in the text, verse 16 of our main text. And he ordered them not to make him known. He didn't want any attention right then. He wasn't doing these miracles to try and get people's attention so he could show them who he was. He didn't want them to tell other people. Everyone who followed him to this undisclosed location, wherever it was, was healed. All of them, it says. But he ordered them to keep quiet about it. Why? Because he specifically did not want a lot of people coming to where he was. In Mark chapter 3, so many people gathered around him because of the miracles he was doing that he couldn't even sit down and eat a meal. That kind of crowd would draw attention. And the authorities would hear about it. The authorities whom he had just gotten away from because they wanted to kill him. So Jesus healed every single person who was in need, who had followed him. And his purpose was not to advance his ministry, not to advance the concept of him being the Messiah. Although I'm sure that was a wonderful side benefit to everyone who was there. They were convinced, I'm sure. It wasn't to demonstrate his power. It was to have mercy and compassion on a people who were in need of it. What this did happen to do was fulfill yet another prophecy about him. It tells us right here in verses 18 through 21, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. One time, I was looking at a big candle that we had. You know the, the great big candles that, I, I don't know where you get them, I guess the candle store. Um, big things like, like this big around, and they're like that deep, and there's like one little wick in the middle, which is never, ever, ever going to get all that candle to melt. It's just... It's a poor design. I don't know who made these things, but it's a poor design. So I'm watching this candle, 
And the edges, they're still clear up at the top. They've never melted out at the edges, but it's melting away at the middle, and the wick is burning, and it's gotten down to the point, I mean, this is after several times having it lit, of course, but I'm just watching it sitting on the table burning, and it's become basically a bowl of liquid, and the wick has burned down to where it's just barely out of the liquid, the wick is. And the wick is like flickering. It's going... It's lighting up a little bit, and then it goes down to just kind of smoldering, and then it'll light up a little bit. But it's it's drowning. It's not going to make it. And I'm just sitting there watching it. I don't know why. I must have been really bored. And I just looked at it, and I took, I don't know if I had a pin or a toothpick or something, and I just reached in there and poked that little wick and stood it up just a little bit straighter. And woof, it just burst back into flames. Because... On its own, it was just going to drown and go out, and it just needed something to hold it out. And when it was, it came back to life. It was still a really poor design candle, though. I've lost my place, I'm sorry. Frank, he is an example of what you do with a plant that's gotten lopsided and is in danger of upending itself. If somebody knows a better way of doing this, by all means tell me afterwards. I'm not exactly great at plants. It's also what you do with a plant where the shoot has become damaged and it cannot stand up under its own weight any longer. You give it a splint so to speak, or a crutch. With him, I just I pushed a dowel rod all the way to the bottom of that pot, and it's right up against the edge so that it's got a little strength. And then I tied it to Frank, and it lends its strength to him to keep him from tipping over. Eventually, I just need to transplant him, and when I do, I think I need to alter his orientation so that he's standing up but I'm pretty sure if I put him back in that window, he's going to be doing this again after a while. Maybe I need to put him on the floor. The prophecy from Isaiah about the Messiah makes it clear to us that he will treat those of us who are in need with care and tender mercy and compassion. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. In the chapter just before the one from our main passage today, we read Jesus telling us something about himself. Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 30 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's amazing to me how often the communion meditation 
goes right along with the sermon. Not the chiggers part, but the other part. The Pharisees took those who were already heavily laden and they loaded them up with more burdens. Matthew 23 verse 4 says to us, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Literally today you'd say you won't even lift a finger to help them out. Jesus is just the opposite. He has taken our burdens upon himself and all that he asks us to do is love God and love each other. Scripture is very clear about how we go about doing that. And there's, there's things that, that, that are written in there. But it's pretty easy. God's, God, through Jesus, says, love God and love each other. Fairly easy to keep in your head. You see, in both of these main passages today from chapters 12 and chapter 11, we're given the clues as to the greatest aspect of the compassion of Jesus. In the passage from chapter 12 in which the prophecy from Isaiah is quoted, we are told that he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles and that in his name the Gentiles will hope. Well, as a Gentile, I'm pretty happy about that. In the passage from chapter 11, he starts out by saying that all things have been given to him by the Father and that no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son reveals the Father. You see, every single thing about Jesus' time on earth, the healings, the teachings, the sending out of the disciples into the world, the feedings, even the rebuking when he called people hypocrites. All of it was done out of compassion. He was having compassion not just in the short term of healing you know, sick or crippled people, although that was awfully kind of him. He was having compassion in the long term And that he was leading people to know the Father. And not just the Jewish people, but the Gentiles also. We have all gained our hope through his compassion and his care. Because the final mission of his coming to earth was to stand in our place. At that point of execution for sins. And to give us all Not just healing of a crippled body or a sick body, but healing from a fallen sinful nature, a broken relationship with God the Father that only He could heal. His compassion was to restore us to eternal health through sanctification and salvation for eternity. But here's the deal. Like any 
gift that is given freely, you have to accept it. You have to say, yes, I desire Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. To repent of your sins, to give them over to Him, to confess His name, be immersed into His death, burial, and resurrection, and rise this new creation, forgiven through the compassion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you haven't, please don't wait another day.